Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Easter Eve, eh? Ahead of us lies four days of staying home, no work, TV, eating, hanging out with the family, shops mostly closed. Yeah, so four days that'll be almost entirely indistinguishable from the past 15. But there will be chocolate. On which note, welcome to the Easter Bunny themed episode of Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 9th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Nice bunny ears you're wearing there, Adam. We bring you the latest news as well as snippets from life down under in lockdown and from around the world. Today's numbers, eh? 29 new cases, total case count 1239. That's another fall. 29 is the lowest daily increase since before the lockdown began. But the other number that really floats our boats today is the recovered number, 35. So more recoveries 35, then new cases, 29. That means the number of people counted as actively sick with coronavirus has gone down. Yeah, and today's 1pm appearance, Jacinda Ardern even allowed herself some of the triumphalism, I guess, that they've been carefully avoiding over the past few days, even as the numbers have looked more and more promising. Uh, She's actually using words like turning a corner and talking about being on track for, quote, the the most optimistic scenario from some of the epidemiological models. At one point she said, we have what we need to win this marathon. So the conversation really starts to move, doesn't it? It's about when to end the lockdown, what it will look like, how we'll contact trace once we're out of level four, maybe with apps. And we're really going to be getting into the conversation about health versus economy. How do you control that seesaw and just get it right? I saw a piece on stuff this morning by Kate McNamara, which answered a little question that's been in my head recently. It's quite a complicated piece talking about the kind of ways we weigh these things. But one, just in, in passing, there's a mention of these things called qualies. Uh, that's a quality adjusted life year. So that's a it's a measurement that's already used by Treasury and agencies like Pharmac when they're doing cost benefit analyses, you know, deciding whether to spend your million dollar on a new drug or install some more hospital beds. Long story short, we do have a number in New Zealand for the value of one year of human life in good health. They say, you know, you can't put a price on life, but in fact, one year of good health is priced at $28,287. Hmm. You know, in the accounting of coronavirus, there's a lot, a hell of a lot in the negative column. But in the positive column, you can add stops war. A Saudi-led military coalition has halted its operations in Yemen, in part because of fears it could potentially spread the disease amongst civilian populations which have so far escaped any illness. So there you go. And we've been hearing for ages about how the economic shutdowns in various cities, although catastrophic for the economy, have cleared up air pollution all over the planet. And as we know, more generally, nature's coming back, as evidenced by my hedgehog rescue earlier in the week. Actually, Adam, sorry, I meant to say, when you were boasting about your awesome animal rescue from the streets of Maerangi Bay the other day, you know that hedgehogs eat native wetters, right? Really? Yeah, I've got a friend who told me about an autopsy where they opened up a hedgehog's stomach and it was just chocker with native wetters. Doc also said that they're a threat to native skinks and they love the taste of native bird eggs. All right, would you like me to go and find my hedgehog, get my car and run it over? No, but I would like you to get back on point to the threat of the hour COVID-19, which is what this podcast is supposed to be about. Right. Later on, we speak with science reporter and Stuff's climate change editor, Eloise Gibson, about trust in science. At a time we're being locked down on the advice of scientists and public health officials, it's important the relationship between scientists and the government and the public is in some kind of synchronisation. We ask you, you know, how do we compare to other countries? But first, what's happened today? 
From midnight tonight, everyone who arrives in the country will go into a mandatory 14-day quarantine at a hotel. Jacinda Ardern has announced the Cabinet will decide on April the 20th whether to reduce the Level 4 lockdown. That's two days before the end of the current four-week time frame we're in. A new study from Singapore estimates around 10% of COVID-19 infections may come via people who aren't showing any flu symptoms at all. That's based on looking at 243 cases. The result strongly reinforces the idea that social distancing is vital. And in politics, New Zealand first leader Winston Peters has called for the election to be delayed a bit. It's set down for September and he wants a push back to November. So far, the Prime Minister has said, nah. But yeah, politics, you remember that? Yeah, well, we caught up with someone who knows politics, Sunday Star Times editor and former Stuff political editor Tracy Watkins, who's in her bubble with her overwalked dog, Murphy. Tracy Watkins, last time we spoke to you, your dog was a bit tired. How was your dog? <laughs> she's been thrown out of the room because every time I talk to people, she, she snores and you can always hear this moment where people stop and think, what was that sound? So I, I've tossed her out for important calls like yours. Oh, so, oh there we go. Yeah. We're very honoured. We're very honoured. So politically, it's a really interesting time. The opposition is playing nicely, I suppose, at the moment, not undermining the government in, in ways that they normally would. But does that create a bit of a political vacuum? Um, no, look, I think the opposition's doing what it has to do. Nobody wants people to, to see uh, politicians scoring cheap political points at this time. They're also looking at them to see whether, you know, are, are they constructive enough to be the alternative government? And this is such a hugely important time for National to look like it is a government in waiting. Because remember, of course, we've got an election coming up in a few months. I mean, it feels ridiculous and crazy that there's even anything like an election still on the cards just given everything else that's happening. But they have to think of that. I think I think they played it badly initially when they were trying to be that sort of using the whole attack politics, if politics is normal. Well, this isn't normal times and politics is normal isn't working, I think, being constructive. I think Simon Bridge is chairing that committee and having a chance to look a little bit more statesmanlike is um, probably good for him after what I think was a bit of a bumpy start mm. on how to handle this. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned the election. It, it does like It does seem bizarre doesn't it? This is an election year. What what does that mean politically and logistically? Well, logistically, I mean, about um, August or something, you'd be expecting them to be hitting the road and going to shopping malls and things. Well, it's well, I don't know if you stood stood in the supermarket queue like I did this morning for an hour. They're not going to be doing any shopping mall visits. So um, no babies are going to be kissed this year, are they? No, I mean, you know, they'd be they'd be reporting you to the police. Um, so, so yeah, I don't. The usual rules are just out the window. I suspect this means it's going to be very much a television affair. It's going to be almost like you know the, the debates are going to become much more prominent and important. But you know, even okay, so at this stage, it looks like we're getting on top of this and things are going to go well. So we we. We might be out of lockdown in a month, but even then, it's not going to be situation normal, is it? Yeah, so, yeah. we're going to be in and out, but, aren't we? So, w- w- politically as well, you know, you've got New Zealand First and the Greens, and they're basically, you know, they're kind of almost silent at the moment. They're hard to hard to hear. So, w- what's happening with them? Well, I mean, the Greens just they just don't have a role to play in this crisis, and that's you know a bit um you know, that's a sort of a harsh thing to say. Winston Peters 
has. Mm. Um, and I think as foreign minister, he's made some very good steps. He has been able to front some of the issues that are there front and centre, like quarantining people, rep- repatriating Kiwis. So he's managed to sort of like present that statesman-like image. So, so, so he's doing all right. I think the other aspect of it, I think Shane Jones has been trying to get some profile around regional development. But, but you know, this is a crisis at which, you know, people are looking to to the Prime Minister, almost like the figurehead of how do we get through this. In terms of the polls, I have no idea what they're saying. I saw some suggestions of internal polls putting Labour at some phenomenal number. I wouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah. Um, the way things are panning out at the moment, it all seems to be going to plan. Although I guess you know the economics is going to count for a lot later on down the track, isn't it? If you've got lots of people who've lost their jobs and companies yeah, have fallen over. Yeah, that's the thing. Mm. That's when it's going to be hitting around the time of the election. Yeah. Job, joblessness, poverty, let's face it, inequality. Wow, that's just going to be through the roof now. Mm. House prices probably going to be sliding. So people's feelings of wealth that even just you know, hard to believe, but a month ago, if you were in Auckland, you were sitting there thinking, my God, I'm getting richer by the day. And all of a sudden, that's going to disappear as well. So there's so many factors coming into play. Um, Who knows? But I I do think the one thing that people will look at is how Ardern has been very um, uh, decisive, uh, quite strong through this. And okay, there's been lots of dicking around about whether they should have done things sooner or later. But I think the evidence shows that they've acted fairly swiftly and gone quite hard yeah. compared to most places overseas. All right, Tracy Watkins, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. And um, have a good day there in your wee bubble. 100 days is is almost like this magical number. You know, politicians talk about what they'll achieve in their first 100 days. And I'm pretty sure there's a 100-day weight loss diet out there. But here's something that, that really made me do a bit of a double take. It's a a piece in the UK Guardian pointing out that today, Thursday, April the 9th, is exactly 100 days since the very first reported case of coronavirus. Uh, and that was on a Chinese government website on December the 31st, though at that point they called it, quote, pneumonia of unknown cause. So it's it's quite a brilliant piece. I mean, it's a pretty simple idea, you know, coronavirus, 100 days that changed the world as a title. But it just starts with a reminder of the stories that we thought were well, and, and that were of interest back then, you know, your Syrian civil war, Brexit for the UK, Trump's impeachment. I had a quick check for New Zealand's equivalent. So it's kind of tricky actually rewinding the news clock to see what we we're talking about in early January. But in Stuff's weekly Auckland newsletter, I can tell you that we were very concerned about the proliferation of e-scooter brands on the streets of Auckland. Beam, Neuron, Flamingo and Jump were starting to make a push into the Lime space. I remember those e-scooter things. Are they even still a thing? Are they around? I didn't see a lot when no. we went into the Stuff offices for our flu jab yesterday. So that Guardian piece, so it's got this introduction, it jumps through the, the you know, what was on our minds as this thing was happening. But then it, it steps through those 100 days, and I found it kind of breathtaking to just realise how recent these things were. So January the 1st, Wuhan seafood market is shut down. January 9th, the virus is identified as, as being a coronavirus. January 13th, Thailand's first case. 20th, person-to-person transmission confirmed. January the 24th, the virus gets to Europe. So that's 25 days and it's in Europe. 31st, there's now officially more cases of COVID-19 than of SARS, which had seemed such a big deal. And it was a big deal. Lots of people died. But 
seemed such a big deal in 2003. And then, you know, accelerating through. Day 36, that's early February, the first death outside China in the Philippines. Day 50, that's that South Korean church cluster you might remember. Day 56, now it's in Italy and Iran. And Donald Trump tweets that it's totally under control in the US and so on. A, a few more dates, though. March the 11th, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. That was day 71. Day 83 is UK's lockdown on March the 23rd. Day 85, March the 25th, New Zealand's lockdown starts at 11.59pm. Remember that? Wasn't so long ago, a couple of weeks. Day 93, case count hits a million, 50,000 dead. Day 99, that's yesterday. Day 100, welcome to today. Yeah, and it's just grim news after grim news, isn't it? In New York, more than 6,200 people have died since March the 1st. It's not that long ago. As the governor there puts it, the bad news isn't just bad news. The bad news is actually terrible. In, in July last year, which seems like an eternity ago, eons, I was in New York for work and I spent time on the famous subway, as you do. That's now virtually silent and 41 transit workers have died of the disease 41. Imagine that. 41 of your work colleagues have died in the past few weeks. Bang. Gone. It's a little hard to know how to segue from these horrendous stories abroad to the, at this point, relatively lighter versions of it that we're getting in New Zealand. But Hamish McNeely, our colleague in Dunedin, has written a story about uh, uh, the cluster in Bluff. So that that was actually centred around another wedding. Remember, there was an outbreak in Wellington associated with a wedding as well. And so the Bluff wedding is now connected to 81 cases. Hamish spoke to one woman who said that of her group, her husband's side of the family, including friends, 21 of the 23 people tested positive. That's the second wedding, isn't it? You know, weddings, there's always a story, isn't there? You know, remember that time? Remember the day, the dress, the cake, the hot best man? Oh, and, and yeah, the entire guest list came down with some horrible pandemic disease. Oh, awesome. That's going to be cool at the Diamond Anniversary get-together, isn't it? There's been a small outbreak of cute around the world, though. It started in New Zealand when our Prime Minister said the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy were essential workers, and that story was soon reported in all the big shiny overseas papers that we love to see ourselves in. Anyway, then since then, other politicians have muscled in. The Premier of the Canadian province of Ontario announced that the Christian Festival Rabbit was an essential worker in North America. And then François Legault, the Premier of Quebec, weighed in on the Tooth Fairy. Uh, que saying that they were indeed essential. Fun fact, though, in French-speaking countries, the tooth fairy is actually known as la petite souris, which means little mouse. Not a fairy then, but still steals children's mouth bones, so still totally creepy. Emails. Our inbox, our famous inbox, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Bit of a mystery one today. Ooh. There's no subject line. Right. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. The message itself is to the point. What does it say? It's very, very snappy. It just says, no. That's it. Nothing else. Just no. So, Lakin, if you're listening, we've got the time. You can write to us. Maybe expand what you meant. Could be helpful. Amy O'Hagan, a regular emailer, it must be said, to the show. Her, um, she's picked up on my question to Henry Cook the other day about the swooning over Ashley Bloomfield. Just another note, says Amy, to tell you I'm still listening, but also to let you know about the rise of the Dr. Ashley Bloomfield Appreciation Society, that's all capitals, on Facebook. There are 221 followers on that page. Have you noticed how he's always called Ashley Bloomfield, not Ashley or Bloomfield? 
And a very sweet email from a friend of ours who wrote in to tell us a couple of things, but also that her husband was just off to deliver some pills to his mum. She's in her 80s, late 80s, and has dementia. She lives alone, is a little bit confused by everything that's going on, and her husband was really sad about not being able to give her a hug, which you would be, and they're a huggy family apparently, so even more so. And so our friend suggested to her husband that he serenade her from outside her wee house. He's a singer and guitar player. So she writes, I think it will give her a laugh and she won't miss the hug so much. Hope the neighbours don't mind. I'm sure the neighbours will love it. I bet they did. And I hope that they videoed it and sent it in to us as a pandemic playlist offering. Oh. Right, what is in the pandemic playlist today, Adam? Well, it's a really interesting one this time. And again, I'm going to play it for us right now. What is that? Well, first, I would say it's rather soothing, isn't it? But it is called Viral Counterpoint of the Coronavirus Spike Protein by Marcus J. Bula. It's not spelt the same as Ferris Bueller, but maybe it's said the same Bueller. So apparently this piece of music is the sound of coronavirus, kind of. So what this guy did is he's taken numerical data about the genetic makeup of COVID-19, you know, amino acids and, and all that, you know, GTCA stuff, I guess, and sonified it, which is so converted the numbers to notes. And yeah, I've seen quite a few comments about this all over the place. As someone said on Twitter, you'd expect a lethal pandemic virus to sound a little bit nastier rather than some kind of Zen meditation thing. The thing about these sonification things is, frankly, by tweaking the settings at the beginning, you could probably, with the same data, make it sound like death metal or like this, which is like, I don't know, a Japanese garden or something. But anyway, I I kind of like it. I haven't checked out the copyright on that with any luck. It's, it's completely open source. But I'm wondering if we could maybe start using chunks of it for linking stuff. Watch this space. So it's almost like there's this big international experiment underway at the moment. You know, each, each country is a separate subject. And each country is taking a different approach to responding to COVID-19. It's a pretty bad experiment because there are so many variables moving around. There's different geographies, there's different cultures, there's matters of timing and of luck. But as we see how different countries fare in terms of getting rid of it, you know, there's, there's one variable which also seems to be pretty important, and that's the way a country deals with science and data. So I was thinking about it before, it's almost like there's a triangle. You know, you've got the government, you've got the science and health experts, and you've got the people. And in each country, that triangle is a slightly different shape. So Eloise Gibson is Stuff's climate change editor and a long-time science reporter. So Eloise, what's, what's the shape of New Zealand's triangle and, and how does it compare to others? Well, I quite like the triangle idea. Um, I guess if you think about, I think about it as a kind of a flow of trust. If you think about the trust that New Zealanders have in science, the trust that New Zealanders have in their government, the trust that our government has in science um, and the kind of conversation that has to happen between those things to get people to do something like stay in their damn houses for an endless infinity number of weeks. Um, it's it's shown me, I think, that New Zealand's flow of trust is pretty good. I mean, there was a Colmar Brunton poll out yesterday that found that 
New Zealanders have got an 88% uh, level of trust in the government rate, making the right decisions about COVID. Uh, the G7 average, I think, was 59%, so that's pretty high. Uh, and... You know, if you, I think if you look at the way in which our government has dealt with science and communicated that science to the public, which can be even more important, I think, than actually the quality of the scientific advice that they're getting, because um, you can have all the great advice in the world, but if you can't communicate it, people don't understand why they're being asked to do what they're doing. I think that does explain, you know, in some ways, why our trust is quite high. This is COVID-19, it's a science and health story, but presumably this isn't our first rodeo for New Zealand. No, it's true. You know, I write about climate change and climate is often used as a barometer, I guess, of public's trust in science because it is usually when there's no pandemic, it is the biggest science story in town. And so often, you know, the public's level of belief in human-induced climate change is used as a kind of a proxy for, for trust in science in general. Uh, and there was an interesting piece of research out from John Kerr at Victoria University, which surveyed 9,000 New Zealanders and found that they generally trusted scientists. Only 20% were either unsure or didn't think that humans caused climate change. I'm sure if you were to run that study in the United States or even Australia, that figure would be quite different. While there were some kind of political elements to it, so disbelief in climate change was uh, associated with other kind of scientific disbelief, so things like whether vaccines worked, a question that's suddenly very relevant with, with COVID and the hunt for a vaccine there. Indeed. And it was associated with being politically conservative or strongly religious. But with the numbers being what they are there, we just don't have anything like the kind of partisan divide on attitudes to and belief in scientific evidence that you see in the United States and even other countries, you know, where you could probably make a really good guess about whether someone will believe in climate change by asking them who they vote for. There's some element of that in New Zealand, but certainly not to the level that other countries have. You know, we've got bipartisan support for the zero carbon bill here. We had, although it was a conscience vote, we had support from all parties for the anti-smacking law. I don't know if you remember that all those years ago. Are you being excessively optimistic? So we've got this really crazy stuff overseas in the Cote d'Ivoire Recently, uh, locals tore down a COVID-19 testing station because of a mistaken belief that it was a COVID hospital and the mistaken belief that if that were the case, it would be bringing disease into the community rather than helping with it. But look, on, on my extended Facebook networks, I'm seeing some awful nonsense about COVID. There's, you know, 5G causing um, COVID infections. People saying, protect yourself, gargling with salt water, that'll that'll prevent the virus taking hold. Or, you know, take deep breaths, that way the, the virus won't be able to get into your lungs. So it seems like a, a little bit of bullshit goes a very long way. And I feel I'm seeing a bunch of it in New Zealand all the same. I think that's fair. Um, I'm certainly not making out as though New Zealand doesn't have its share of either distrust in science or um, ignorance of what the science is saying or knowledge of what the science is saying and just simply not believing it, choosing to believe something else. I mean, that happens everywhere. And, you know, New Zealand has its share of vaccine distrust. We have our share of um, strong lobby groups against things like fluoride and water. So, 
We're certainly not immune. One of the things that I found really interesting is that other research, Victoria, for example, has found that people who distrust science on issues like climate often do so because they don't like the policy implications. So rather than starting at the evidence and saying, okay, what does the evidence show me? Okay, this is what I need to think. They work backwards. So they say, well, I don't like the idea of not being able to drive my petrol car around as much. I don't like the idea of some particular thing happening to change my life. And so they they work backwards to distrust the science that's telling them that they might need to do those things. And I think we have seen a little bit of that with COVID. You know, I keep coming back to the US as the kind of example of a dysfunctional system (laughs) when it comes to the relationship between the people and the government and science. But even here, you know, I think probably at the outset of this lockdown, you could have seen what the economic consequences of it would be. They were going to be devastating and it was a big plunge for the government to take. But while initially the the commentary in the media was very much supportive of that, once people started to kind of chafe at the restrictions and to see the economic cost with their own eyes, you know, see people that they knew losing their jobs, the increase in people questioning whether the public health advice that it was worth it was right was quite noticeable. I saw a lot of commentary around, you know, the economic pain and whether perhaps, you know, it wasn't outweighed by by public health. And I'm not sure that the evidence on any of that had changed. I, I think people were perhaps feeling it. You know, they were feeling it in their own, own eyes and that was causing them to put a much stronger um, sceptical eye over that public health advice. The elephant in the room here, you know, luckily President Trump has very little direct effect on what's happening in New Zealand in terms of, of health. What are we to make of what's going on in the US? Well, I mean, it, it, it is the kind of country that you can watch if you want to feel good about New Zealand's systems um, and, and just the general sensibleness <laughs> of our public discourse. There's this amazingly frank interview in Science magazine with Anthony Fauci, who's a top US health official. He's kind of the equivalent of Ashley Bloomfield here in New Zealand. His official title is the the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. But in practice, he's the top scientist that is standing up at press conferences on COVID. And he has to stand up with Trump. And he's often speaking after Trump. And he has to somehow correct mistakes that Trump has made about things like, you know, China hid the virus for months and months, um, which isn't quite true, or that this particular malaria medicine is going to cure COVID, or, you know, we've totally got this pandemic under control, all things that aren't true. And this poor guy has to stand up and kind of correct the record, but without openly disagreeing with the president or getting fired, which astonishingly he has also managed not to do so far. Um, So when this journalist in science said to him, you know, how do you navigate that? He said, well, what do you want me to do? I can't jump up in front of the microphone and push him down, meaning push Trump down. Uh, All he can do is say, "Okay, he said it. Let's try and get it corrected for next time. And then he gives his feedback to the White House uh, and things go from there. So 
Look, you know, I, I think it's wonderful for the United States that they have someone who is in that role and who can do it, but you certainly don't see the united front, you know, that we see here between our top politicians and top scientific advisors. Eloise Gibson, Climate Change Editor for Stuff, thank you very much. Thank you, Adam and Eugene. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday, the 9th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Eloise Gibson, Tracy Watkins, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. Thank you for listening. End of week three. It's Easter, but not as we know it. We're taking a break to focus on chocolate. We'll be back on Tuesday. In the meantime, if you're missing us, you can go back and listen to our earlier episodes over the weekend. You can find them all on the usual podcast apps plus a Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. And don't forget, you can contact us via email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Salama Inga. Salama Inga.